Genesis chapter 3 records the fall when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God and everything broke, our relationship with, between us and God, between us and each other, and with the rest of creation. So all broken, cleansed refers to the flood and Noah and the world getting so bad that God's got to step in and do something. And so he cleanses the world, and then he also promises that he will never send a flood again. And then D is for directed, and this is talking about the patriarchs, these, these fathers of faith, starting with Abram. And God called Abram when he was in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. So he directs him to go, well, he doesn't tell him where he's going. He just says, go to the place I'll show you. So he directs Abram, and he leads Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then E is for Egypt. In the time of Joseph, the family of God ends up in Egypt. And in Egypt, eventually a pharaoh, a king arises who doesn't remember the goodness that Joseph did. And he puts the people in slavery and mistreats them, eventually commanding that all the firstborn, uh, all the males, babies should be killed and cast into the Nile River. So that's Egypt. And then F is for freed. God raises up a deliverer. He sends Moses. And Moses tells uh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Yeah, good job. All right, so yeah, let my people go. And there's these 10 plagues and they finally are released from Egypt. They're freed. And they wander around for the wilderness in 40 years because Egypt is still in their hearts. But eventually we get to G, granted. This is also known as the conquest that where the, the promised land is finally given to the people and they finally go in and take possession of it. And then you have this time of judges. The judges were kind of temporary leaders over different parts of different tribes. And that's for H, hero-ish, okay? Let me tell you why. Because the judges were not great characters. I'm actually reading through that right now in my uh, morning Bible reading time. And uh, the judges are very mixed. They kind of do what God tells them to do, but then it goes bad very quickly. And there's this kind of downward cycle, cycle in the book of Judges, right, where the people turn away from God, and then they're oppressed by foreign nations, and then they're like, oh, fine, sorry, God. And then he sends them a savior in the form of a judge to deliver them, and then they have peace for a very short time because then the cycle starts over again. Wickedness, oppression, repentance, salvation, peace, wickedness. And it gets worse and worse. And it kind of goes down and down in the book of Judges. So hero-ish. And the conclusion of the book of Judges is there, there's a problem with this whole system. The problem is that everyone does what was right in their own eyes because there's no king. And so eventually the people are given a king. Saul is the first king of Israel. That's I, inaugurated. The united monarchy where there's one kingdom ruling all over the whole land of Israel. And that one King Saul, good or bad? You guys know the story. Uh, he starts off okay, and then he goes bad. Uh, Saul disobeys God in lots of different ways. Um, and God says, the judgment on you for your disobedience is that the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to someone else. And so then the kingdom passes on to David. And all the kids, you guys know the story of David and Goliath and David becoming king, and he's known as uh, the greatest king of Israel. And yet... David, too, is not a perfect king. David's where we're going to focus today. So let me just skip really quickly through the next parts. Uh, in the time of David's grandson, the kingdom is divided. So that's jeopardized. That's uh, the time of the divided monarchy. And when God starts sending prophets to his people and saying, you guys need to figure things out. You need to come back to me and worship me or else you're going to be taken into exile. And the people don't listen. They don't repent. They continue 
to commit idolatry. And so eventually you get to K, they are kicked out. The northern kingdom goes into exile in 722 BC and then the southern kingdom in 586 BC. And eventually they come back, L, they're led back to the promised land in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, but it's not what it was supposed to be. It's not as great as it ever was. And then finally you get a few more prophets that M says Malachi, and it's just is kind of a stand-in for the post-exilic prophets, the, the prophets after the exile. And then we get to the New Testament. <sighs> All right. So that's the Old Testament story. And uh, oh, thank you. Wow. Okay. No, no that's okay. You don't have to plop that. Uh, but we're picking up the story today with David because God renews this promise and, and kind of narrows his focus of what he's going to do in the world through the line of David. And so let's look at this amazing promise. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 11. So if you have your Bible, I'll give you a moment to uh, open up there. Let me find it in my Bible. And we'll look at this amazing prophet, uh, amazing promise to David. Now, just a little setup while you turn there. Uh, David is known as one of the greatest kings of Israel. And actually, I, I was just talking to someone this last week who was reading through, and they're like, I always heard that David was great. And then I read the story, I was like, he's not that great. <laughs> and that's actually part of the story. Because if you remember way back, right, God promised Adam and Eve that Eve would have this serpent-crushing seed, right? And God promised Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through blessing you, I'm going to bless the entire world. And so by the time we get to King David, this guy who as a teenager defeated a giant, all the people of Israel have the, their hopes raised. They're like, this guy could be the serpent-crushing seed of Eve. This could be the king who's going to, like, bless our nation so much that it's going to bless the entire world. This could be how these promises happen. And it's not, is it? It's a big disappointment because David is still affected by the same sin that we find in our own hearts. And he eventually um, sins in some, some small ways, at least for them, uh, and then in some really big ways by sleeping with another man's wife, figuring out things in the army so that this man could die on the front lines on purpose, committing murder, and then trying to cover it all up. So David is not the promised seed crushing, uh, serpent-crushing seed of Eve because the serpent actually gets him too, doesn't it? That's a reference back to week one. So if you weren't here for that, you can go back and listen. But now let's look at this Davidic covenant, all right? 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 11. I'm going to pick it up halfway through this verse. Um, and what's happening here is actually David is in his palace. He's at peace. He's in this nice palace. And he thinks about, hey, that we still have a tabernacle. Like, I'm just the king, and the Lord is in a tent. That doesn't seem right. There's no temple yet. There's just the tabernacle, this tent that they constructed in the wilderness. It's like, this doesn't seem right. It's like, I'm going to build God a house. I'm going to build God a, temp uh, a temple so we can worship him. And, the God, uh, and God sends the prophet Nathan back to David to say, you know what? If I really wanted a house, I would have asked for one. I'm okay. I don't need a house. But thank you. And because this was in your heart, because your heart was so good before me, I'm going to build you a house, David. And that's where we pick things up. So the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. And this would have been understood as like a dynasty. God's going to make you a dynasty. 
When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, David, and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Now, this is known as the Davidic covenant, the, the promise that God makes to David. And it's fascinating because it doesn't hinge on David's future obedience, right? God doesn't say, like, if you remain faithful to me, then I'll do this. He's just like, I'm going to do this, David, period. Your line will never end. I will build you a dynasty. And a descendant of yours will build the temple. And then also, do you know, it's both like, I'll give you everlasting love, but also punishment or discipline for disobedience. Both of these are promised. Now, it's kind of fascinating because when you read this through the story, it becomes very clear that this is one of those cases where there's multiple fulfillments. And this happens several other places in the Old Testament where something happens in this person's own time that makes sense. It's like, oh yeah, this is the promise fulfilled. And yet it's not totally fulfilled. And it seems like there's still some pieces missing. And then we see it fulfilled in a bigger and greater way, ultimately through Jesus. Spoiler alert for you. Okay. Um, so what happens next in the story is that one of David's sons becomes the next king of Israel, Solomon. And Solomon does build a temple. And it's great. Um, now what's not so great is that even though Solomon is known as the wealthiest king of Israel and the wisest king of Israel, God gives him this great wisdom. Uh, Solomon ultimately disobeys the Lord. And his heart is led astray. He marries many women, if you know the story. And many of those are foreign women who bring their idols into um, his home and ultimately into his heart. And he turns away from worshiping the God alone. And because of this disobedience, there are consequences, right? Did you see that in the promise? I still love you, but there are consequences for disobedience. And his disobedience results in the divided kingdom. Let me read you the verses that make this clear. Uh, then the Lord said to Solomon, since you have done this, and did not keep my covenant and my statutes. Now, to be clear, this is not the covenant that God made to David. This is a different covenant. This is the covenant God made to the people of Israel as a whole on Mount Sinai. It's the law, which is what we're going to look at next Sunday on Christmas Eve. I know it's kind of weird to look at the law on Christmas Eve, but it's going to be great. Trust me. Um, but, but God said, since you didn't keep my, the covenant I made to all of Israel and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. However, I will not do it during your lifetime for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. Yet, and here's the yet, I'm going to keep my promise. I will not tear the entire kingdom away from him, your son. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem that I chose. What is God saying? You've totally turned away from me. And so the, there's going to be consequences for disobedience, but I'm still going to keep my promise your descendant will still rule over something. 
And the time of Solomon's son named Rehoboam, this happens. Uh, there's basically a short civil war. And the, what was once the United Kingdom of Israel is divided. And from then on, you have two kingdoms in Israel. This is the divided monarchy. And you have in the north called Israel, with ten and a half tribes in the south, Judah. Um, and Judah is actually not just Judah, it's also Benjamin and another half tribe of Manasseh. But it's called the tribe, uh, the kingdom of Judah. And that's where David's descendants continue to reign. You guys following along? Professor Hayrent is almost done being professor, okay? Uh, because now we're going to pick up the story and see how it's just so applicable to our understanding of Jesus and what he did for us. But you see the fulfillment, right? It's kingdoms divided. You have Israel and Judah. And then what happens? A bunch of Israel's kings are still rebellious, still worship other gods. And God warns them through the prophets over and over and over again. They keep not listening. And eventually, again, in the year 722, the northern kingdom is conquered by Assyria. And the people are taken away. And you would think the southern kingdom would be like, wow, we should probably change our ways. By and large, they don't. There's a few good kings, but by and large, they continue their rebellion and disobedience. And so in 586, big bad Babylon comes, conquers them. Kids, if you know your, your story of Daniel, right? Where is Daniel? He's in Babylon. He was in Judah, but then Judah got conquered by Babylon. He got taken into um, exile. And so this is the weird part because at this point in history, now you don't really even have a kingdom. And yet God sends these prophets, these messengers of God, with this crazy message that God is not done and he's still going to keep his promise. Here's one of the most famous ones and one that we often read at this time of year. Isaiah the prophet says this. He says, Then, looking towards the future, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. Pause so you understand what's going on. We have a tree in our yard that we've been trying to kill for 15 years. <laughs> Anyone know what I'm talking about? Uh, and actually, it wasn't even a tree when we got there. It was already a stump that someone had cut down this tree a long time ago. But then out of the stump came all these branches trying to regrow a tree from it. And so we cut off the branches every single year. And we try a different treatment that we read online to try and make it so these branches never grow back. And I don't know why, but I think it's because the roots are so deep and this stump is so big. Every year we get branches coming out of this stump. Now, for us, this is a negative thing. This is a good thing, right? The prophet Isaiah is saying that is like David's line at this point. It looks like a stump. It looks like there's no life there. It looks like there's no descendant of David ruling. But there's going to come a shoot, a branch out of this stump. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. This powerful word from the Lord. And he will kill the wicked 
with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. And skip forward to verse 10. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. You see what's being promised? Isaiah is saying, God's not done with his promise to David. There still will be a descendant. And not only will there be a descendant to rule from David's throne, do you kind of see how this is capturing those other promises we've looked at? This descendant will be a blessing for the nations. The nations will look to this king for guidance. That's what we looked at last week, the, the promise to Abraham. And so, if you or a Hebrew living in the time of Isaiah and heard this word, what are you looking for? You're looking for a king on the throne in Jerusalem. And you never get one in the Old Testament period. The people come back to the land, but there's not a king until Jesus And this is why I think in both of Jesus' genealogies, right? These are the parts in uh, in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3 that most of us kind of like glaze over. But look at what Matthew says. This is the first words of his biography of Jesus. Like this is where we should start. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you see what Matthew's doing? saying this is the guy who's going to bring the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and the promise to David. This is the son of David. This is the the descendant who's going to do all the things God promised. Build the temple. Rule forever. And Luke does the same thing, linking um, the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to David. So again, the, the promise doesn't seem to be fulfilled in the Old Testament, but it is through Jesus And then another thing that's really strange is that God said this descendant would build the temple. Now, Jesus is a builder, but he doesn't build a a literal temple. But when you keep this in mind, certain other ideas uh, become more clear. John 1.14 says this. It says, the word, and this is talking about Jesus, the word became flesh, became human, and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, that word dwelt in the original language is literally tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's a really weird word, but you see what it's getting at. The tabernacle in the Old Testament. The meeting place between heaven and earth, where God would meet with his people, where his presence was. Or if you skip forward a chapter, John says this. He's talking about this weird conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took Herod the Great 46 years to build. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, John tells us. And so when Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Now for them, they don't have the New Testament right yet. I mean, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're actually writing the New Testament. 
So what scripture are they believing? Well, one of them is this promise, 2 Samuel 7. God's saying, my descendant will build the temple. Jesus himself is the temple who was in the grave for three days and then was raised and is now the meeting place of heaven and earth. And when we go to him and go through him, that's where God's presence is. So again, Jesus' genealogy draw attention to the fact that he is from David's line. He is the promised descendant. He himself comes to be the temple. And then finally, what about this disobedience, right? I will discipline him with the blows of men. What's going on? Peter, follower of Jesus, says this. He said, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Talking about the cross. So that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. You see what's going on here? There's a replacement going on, a switch. That Jesus was never disobedient, but we were. And he takes on himself the consequences of that disobedience. He himself is perfectly obedient, and he takes on himself the consequences of our disobedience. He receives blows for men was what was promised. So here's the point for us. At Christmas, what do we celebrate? We celebrate all these promises. Going back three weeks ago, we celebrate the birth of the serpent-crushing seed of Eve. We celebrate the blessing of Abraham spreading to the whole world. And we celebrate the promised king in David's line who will rule forever. So what does this mean for us? How do we apply this to our lives? How does this shape our understanding of Jesus? Here's a verse uh, many of you are familiar with, although I'm going to challenge some people, I think, misunderstand this verse. It's so important, though. Philippians 3.20 says this. It says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the way a lot of people kind of think about this verse and the way I used to is that, okay, our citizenship is somewhere else in heaven in this invisible realm. And we eagerly wait our Savior, whom we'll go and see like one day when we die, something like that. Here's why I don't think that's right. This is Paul's letter to the Philippians, a place called Philippi. And Philippi, if you do your research, was a Roman colony. And you know what Caesar was called? A savior. And so if you're living in Philippi, a Roman colony in the midst of what they called Asia, and if someone told you, you're a citizen of Rome, from there you await a savior, what would they have thought of? Would they have thought of, one day I'll go to Rome? No, they would have thought, Caesar will come to us. Does that make sense? If you say, from there we await a Savior, the idea is the Savior is going to come to you. And I think this is what Paul is saying. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await for a Savior from there. And the implication is to come here, to rule completely. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's the first point in your bulletin notes if you're following along. That Jesus is the real king of a real kingdom. And he came not just to win our hearts, 
but also to win our allegiance. Now again, I'm just going to belabor this point just for a minute because there's some teaching that's not quite right, but sounds so simple, it sounds correct, where people will say, the Jews in the first century got it wrong. They were looking for, you know, a physical king to rule a physical kingdom, but Jesus came as a spiritual king of a spiritual kingdom. That's what people I've heard say, that idea expressed. And I think that actually misunderstands our misunderstanding or misunderstands the disciples' misunderstanding. See, their misunderstanding was, the problem wasn't a physical king in a physical kingdom. Their problem was a Jewish king for Jewish people. That was their misunderstanding. And Jesus came to be a blessing to the entire world. And so people might say, wait, wait, wait. Okay, you're saying this is a real kingdom, physical kingdom, kingdom of God. Where is it? Point to it on a map. And this is where things get weird. But I just want to say, we have weirdness on our maps too in our modern day world. So for, except, for a moment, I want you all to close your eyes and picture a map of the U.S., okay? Picture a map of the U.S. You probably see the contiguous states plus Alaska way up there hanging off of Canada, right? You see it in your minds? And you can point to any of those places, right? That's the U.S. That's the U.S. But let me ask you a question. Now you can open your eyes. What are these places? And did you picture them in the map in your mind? This map includes U.S. territories, like Puerto, Puerto Rico and Guam, places like that, right? And if you point to Puerto Rico and you're like, what is this? Is this part of the U.S. or not? Yes. And if you go there, right, but it's not a state. If you're born there, you're a U.S. citizen, but you don't get a representative in the House of Representatives or the Senate. So what is this thing? It's a territory. <laughs> Great. Yeah, but what? Right? I think this is a good example of what the kingdom of God is like. It's like this strange place where multiple things are true. And just like if you point to some of these areas on the map, it's like this, this is a weird place. The kingdom of God is like that. It's this weird place that's, that's hard to point to and pinpoint and, and pin down, but it is a real physical place. Jesus is the real king of a real kingdom. See, what the first century followers of Jesus got wrong is not that he was a real king of a real kingdom, what they got wrong is they're like, this is going to be all about Israel. But you remember what Jesus said after his resurrection? Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. But why? Because all authority on heaven and on earth is given to me. So where is Jesus' kingdom? I can show you a map of it. You'll see. Here's Jesus' kingdom. This is Jesus' kingdom. It's every place and every land because he is king of the entire world. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 puts it like this. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible. Do you see? There's not a dichotomy here. He's not king of only the invisible. He's king of both. 
the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in, say it with me, everything and everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood, which is why we're participating in Lord's Supper today, through his blood shed on the cross. This is how Jesus' victory was won. This is why Abraham Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. That's what we celebrated Jesus, the coming of the king, real king of a real kingdom who came to win our hearts and to win our allegiance. And I love how when you follow the story, it's so strange in so many ways because this walking around temple was not born in a palace and he didn't die in the temple, right? He died outside of the city gates. And when he died, do you remember what happened in the temple? Yeah, the veil was torn. And so now anyone and everyone can go into God's presence and God's presence goes everywhere. So what does this mean? We, uh, so let's recap real quick. King, land, citizens. That's how I'm breaking up our application today. Jesus is a real king. He has a real land, a real domain, the entire earth. And we are called to be citizens of this kingdom to find our primary citizenship in this identity. Sort of like this. Um, in life, we have, we have different identities, right? For example, I'm, I'm a brother. I'm a son. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a pastor. I'm an American. Right? And, and all of us have these different idea, uh, identities through our different associations and our relationships. And the way I think of it is that being a member of God's kingdom, choosing to follow Jesus with your life, means the most important thing about you is now that. So I am not a husband who's a Christian. I'm a Christian who's also a husband. Does that make sense? What comes first? What is the central relationship around which everything else revolves? What is the central identity of your life? And I'll also say, you're not an American Christian. You're a Christian who is also an American. See what I'm saying? How do you think of yourself? And if this is our primary citizenship, then this is the primary law that we are to follow. It's not enough to say like, well, is it legal? <laughs> we should go past that if we're a follower of Jesus. This is why James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. That's love that God gave. And I love what he calls it. Do you see what he calls it? What kind of law? The royal law. Because it came from our king, Jesus. We're held to a higher 
law that we are to obey and follow. We adopt Jesus' way of love, justice, mercy, and humility. So here again is the point. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of the king. He's the real king of a real kingdom. And that kingdom encompasses every square inch of our world and our lives. There's nowhere we go. It's not like he just rules at Creekside on Sunday mornings at 10. He also rules as the rightful king of your workplace on Mondays and your home when you go home and the restaurant that you go and eat at. He's the rightful king there too. And we're to obey his law everywhere we go. There's no separation. It's not like, oh, now I'm at work so I don't have to worry about following Jesus' ways. Every single place we go is where we obey King Jesus. And so what we celebrate at Christmas is the fact that our perfect king has come. We needed a king to rule us and to rule the world rightly because guess what? When humans do it, it doesn't go well. And the same thing is true of our personal lives. When I'm the boss of me, it doesn't go well. And so in a moment, uh, we're going to have our Advent reading and candle lighting time, and then we're going to share Lord's Supper and communion. And when we share Lord's Supper today, I want you to think of this as a way of saying, Jesus, you are king. No one else, no thing else. And maybe especially hard for us is not even me. I'm not king of my heart. I'm not king of my life. You are. You're the boss. You're the Lord. In a time of not just remembering his sacrifice, but professing our allegiance to this king.